the JTAC podcast, episode 47 Alpha. Send it. I can do that. JTACs. Clearing it hot, making it rain, and bringing the boom boom. Cool. Uh, welcome everybody to episode 47 of the JTAC podcast. Uh, sat down with one of my uh, US brothers here, Brett. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, Neil, I appreciate you having me on. And uh, humbling to uh, to be asked to be on your podcast and uh, looking forward to it. Yeah, like I say at the start of these things, everyone's opinion on here is their own. Um, and it's not that of a, any organization. Brett, now that I've got obviously the mandatories out of the way, um, Let's take it all the way back to the beginning, man. Where where do you come from? Where do you go? What sort of like the family structure look like, and uh, mm. sort of what takes you through sort of education and stuff that leads you on to wanting to serve? Yeah, so uh, I grew up in a small farm town, uh, about five thousand people when I was growing up. It's in uh, central Missouri, um, small town called Clinton, Missouri, and so again the, the main you know what everybody did was mainly farming uh whether that was cattle or, or crops or whatever and so i grew up there i was born there uh grew up my my early childhood uh was in was in that town we lived in the country uh so as a kid early small kid i, I spent most of my time out in the woods uh running around the woods with my bow and arrow and, and bb gun and you know pretending to play army you know and um which, you know, I, I really enjoyed. I thought, I think you learn a lot uh, just being out in the woods and learning how to train, associate, and navigate and solve problems and um, avoid dangerous wildlife and that sort of thing. So uh, I, I enjoyed it as a kid. Learned a lot, you know, um, country folks are, are, are a bit different, right? And so I learned a lot, a ton from watching my, my grandparents and, and uh, my stepdad at the time and, and his buddies just and my uncles just build stuff and, and just do man shit. And um, so that, that instilled in me at, at an early age a, a strong sense of work ethic and, and determination just to get the, the job done and you don't stop until it is. So um, that's where I grew up. Um, you know, my parents divorced. so. There was a period of time, you know, in uh, elementary, we moved up to the city, just outside of Kansas City, and, um, you know, spent my elementary, early junior high up there, and then eventually moved back down to Clinton uh, for my high school years and uh, finished up there. But I would say, um, growing up, uh, as early as I can remember, uh, I I wanted to serve. I, I didn't know really what that feeling was but i'll give you an example like we we would go to like a baseball game a, a royals game or something like that and um you know they say the they, they play the national anthem before the game and and you know i was maybe like seven eight something like that and um i i would start to tear up and i, I, I didn't know why um at the, at the time I, I knew my grandparents uh, and some of my uncles had, had served in the military, but I really didn't know. Obviously, they didn't, they didn't talk about it, but um, I, I just had this, you know, instinctual desire to, to serve. And I, and I knew that, you know, that song meant something more than just, uh, you know, what you do before a sporting event. So I, I think from an early age, um, 
I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Uh, I had a very, just a very strong interest uh, of anything that had to do with the military. Um, it was, I was all in. Um, so, yeah. Do you, know a lot more, to do. do you know a lot more about your ancestry now? I mean, as yeah. a young man, it sort of didn't, you know that people served. Do you know a lot more about what they did now that you're an older man? Yeah, absolutely. So my uh, grandfather on my, so my dad's dad, uh, he was a combat engineer in World War II. He was on the D-Day invasion uh, on Omaha Beach, uh, clearing the obstacles uh, on D-Day, uh, survived the war. Um, but he, he was, he was really messed up. Um, and I, I didn't know it at the time. I was a young kid. Um, but yeah, he, so he was a combat engineer in World War II. Uh, that's what he did. And uh, my, my grandpa on my mom's side, he was in the army as well. He was an artilleryman. Um, he, he did not uh, see time overseas. And then my third grandfather, you know, from a step marriage thing, uh, he was in the Navy. He, he, was, he fought in the Pacific uh, in the Navy. And so, uh, that's what my grandfathers did uh, during the war. I had two uncles um, that served in Vietnam. Uh, one was uh, a Navy corpsman with the Marines, uh, was wounded, and then uh, got sent home. Um, I think my, my other uncle was in, in the infantry, but uh, both survived the war. Um, so, yeah, and, and I didn't really know that. And obviously, as you get older, um, Certainly, my, my uncle, that was the corpsman, he, he would start to, after I had gotten a couple combat deployments and I would go home on leave, like, uh, it was kind of interesting, like, you know, my, my dad would bring the whole family together to kind of, you know, see me or whatever, and and my uncle and I would always kind of find ourselves off in the corner, um, because, and that's really when he started to open up and, and chat with me and, and ask me questions, and Obviously, he was still pretty pissed off about Vietnam, so so we had some good laughs, and uh, that that was a special kind of time that that we had. Uh, every time I'd come home, we'd kind of have that that sort of moment. So so yeah, yeah it was good. It was um, good. I like that kind of stuff. Yeah, it, never, it wanted to, never wanted to. Never uh, wanted to. Had no interest in going to college, man. <laughs> I was just like, hey man, like all my my buddies in high school were like, hey, you know, where are you going? And I'm like, bro, I, I'm I'm going to the military. So yeah. Easy. Do you remember the the sort of moment? I know obviously you're saying you know you had no intention of doing it, but do you remember like the moment where you you know you struck it up and you were like, right, I'm gonna go find a recruiter or a recruiter found you. How did that sort of like yeah. manifest itself? Yeah. So I had a couple older friends in high school um actually three or four and they they all joined the marine corps and they were two years one or two years ahead of me um and they all joined the marines and um and they you know of course every time they come home on leave you know they're always doing recruiters assistance and they're like hey man and, and they 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 dialed me in. They're like, you're, you're joining the Marines. Like it wasn't even an option. And so I was like, okay, cool. I don't know shit anyway. Uh, <laughs> no one wanted to join the military. 
Um, so the Marines, I mean, you guys look cool now, whatever. And so um, they all got me scored away uh, to join the Marine Corps. And, and I was like all fired up, man, because, um, you know, the Marines have, I mean, Marine Corps is badass in my opinion. But uh, again, at the, at the time, I had a, a, step, a stepfather who was in the Air Force. He was a master sergeant at the time, and, and he was stationed in Turkey for a, on a remote assignment. And he came home on leave and found out that I'd, I'd uh, initially started doing paperwork with the Marine Corps. And he was like, oh, hell no. Like, you're, you're not joining the Marine Corps. And I'm like, why not, man? Like, I got buddies in there. They're doing, they're, they were all infantry in the, the Marines. Yeah. And, um, Young man's dream. Yeah, it's like this is they're running around shooting guns and doing cool shit. And yeah. it's like, well, you know, he's like, you're, you know, the Air Force that has stuff like that. I'm like, oh, what are you talking about, man? So <laughs> he he takes me to the recruiter, Air Force recruiter, and then of course the guy, um, he he pops in the the uh, pararescue and combat patrol in doc video and kind of that that video that they had at the time and uh, I was like oh, okay well that's that's pretty badass let's okay whatever I'll I'll do that yeah and um and so that's that's kind of how and then I had of course I had to go back and tell my buddies that I wasn't joining the Marines they're all pissed because uh the recruiter was their the sergeant the recruiter was all mad at them that they had lost the recruiters yeah. but but anyway yeah that's how that that happened um yeah so when, from there i was in the air force so when you when you obviously go into the uh, the pipeline and obviously you've served um a quite what looked in a time that was very different to the way it is built now um yeah when you went in how does the structure break down because i know it's sort of changed so you kind of go in initial air force training mm -hmm. and then you yeah. divide off into the pipeline as opposed to the other way around now where it's pipeline preparation you know, and the Air Force yeah. sort of element comes very, very late in the training. You're pretty much, you know, you've got your slot. Yeah. So yeah. Is, is there a fear that you're not going to get to what you've been recruited for? Well, that, that's exactly how it went down. Um, so, so I came in and uh, wanted, to, wanted to be a combat controller. And um, of course, the recruiter was like, well, you know, just in case it doesn't work out, you know, put a couple other jobs on here. And so I, my stepdad at the time, he was a computer dude. He's like, oh, just throw that down there and, and uh, something else. I don't know. Um, so anyway, at the time, uh, it was a 10-week indoctrination course. And during the course, I don't remember what week of, of boot camp, but uh, all the dudes that wanted to go try it, you they took you and you, you went over to, you ran over to the, uh, where Indoc used to be. And they, they put you through the, the physical abilities and stamina test, right? The past test. And so we get over there and uh, there's shit, there's probably, I don't know, 80 dudes or something. And long story short, uh, I, di I didn't pass the past test. I mean, I didn't even get in the door to Indoc. That's how uh, screwed up I was, and so, so that that dream was immediately ain't gonna happen. And so, okay, like now, what do we do? 
I knew, so I had my fallback was my, the stupid job my stepdad told me to put on there, which was computer something. And I know I didn't want to do that. So I went and tried to go be a survival instructor, a SEER instructor. And I did the, the psych test, you know, it was 500 questions, you know, that one. And uh, I remember this female captain, she's like, she's reviewing my, my test results. And she's like, yeah, yeah, you're, you're not, uh, based on your results, you're, you're not qualified to be a, a SEER instructor. And I'm like, well, fuck, man. Like, what am I? Okay. So, so I, I ended up being a computer nerd for uh, the first three years of uh, my service. Yeah. Which I was super pissed about. Yeah. But that's, that's quite a crash from, uh, you know, Marine Corps. And then this badass yeah. video gets put in in front of you and probably in the old VHS player. Yeah. <laughs> Had to rewind it back for you to watch it. But, uh, and then it's like a case of, okay, now you're going to be working on computers. Was What kind of computers are we yeah. talking? Are we talking Intel shop or, or, or is it just maintaining um, comms and stuff? You know what, it, it, as I look back on it now, <clears throat> it, I actually, I got lucky. I'll, I'll say that. And so you go through com the computer course, I don't remember, it's four months long or something like that. And then my first duty assignment was out in Hawaii wow. at Hickam Air Force Base. Yeah, Sounds horrible. Yeah. So that wasn't bad. And so, um, so I get out there and I was assigned to the uh, Pacific Air Force Headquarters Computer Systems Squadron. And there was a section in that, that unit that we were responsible for monitoring and analyzing all of the inbound traffic to uh, all the all the Air Force bases in the Pacific. <clears throat> and so what that meant was every day, like there's this, there's a, basically it's a filter that sits out in front of the Air Force network and it sucks in everything that comes, well, everything that comes in the base has to go through that. And that, all that shit gets downloaded to our computers. And then I got to sit there for freaking eight hours and, and analyze, okay, is somebody trying to, maliciously uh gain access to an air force computer right yeah um and then we we assigned various severity levels and blah 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 and and if it was severe and if, if we confirmed that yes somebody had accessed something uh maliciously then we would obviously send up a report and then that would, it could go to uh, the FBI. It could be. It could go to anybody, right, to figure out who it was and, and whatever. Secondary to that was we we um, informed the administrators of that network how to lock their shit up, right? So that's what I did for probably I don't know six months or so, and then for whatever reason, uh, I had a, I had a really good supervisor. Um, staff sergeant and he saw something in me and he and uh, this contractor um, they would actually they were real big into like programming and creating programs and shit and they would actually go in and and try to offensively attack the networks um, kind of like a, a red cell type yeah. thing 
And so he, he, uh, he saw that I, you know, wasn't complaining. I was staying out of trouble. I was doing good work. So he's like, Hey man, why don't you, why don't you kind of, why don't you start to learn from us and help us? And so, um, so I started to do that. And, uh, I think what he really wanted me to do was we would go TDY to all these bases in the Pacific. And I know I was like E2 at the time and they would just send me into these random units across the base with my laptop and nobody gave a shit about it e2 <laughs> and so i could i could go anywhere i wanted basically and i would just plug in somewhere where nobody you know nobody paid attention to me anyway and i would i would freaking just break into the entire base network and um and that's what we did, man. So that that part was was kind of cool. Yeah. And um, During funny that, story, so real quick on that ahead. though. So I was doing a. Um, so eventually, I got good enough at it where they they let me do it by myself. And so I was. I won't say what the base is, but I, 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 I gained access to the weather system at this base. And. I wrote up the report, I sent it to the administrator. This guy, freaking, he's a E6, he calls me and he's, and I'm trying to, I'm reviewing the report with me. He gets pissed off at me when I tell him he is, uh, he's doing a shitty job basically. And he didn't believe me that I had gained access to his weather system. And I said, okay, Sergeant, are you at your monitor? Yeah. Okay. And I, gained access and I, I turned it off. I changed this, I changed his password and I turned the entire system off and he starts freaking out <laughs> because this particular base, uh, has a, a, a fighter alert mission and they can't launch aircraft obviously if they don't know what the freaking weather is. Yeah. And so he was, <laughs> freaking the fuck out and he's like what did you do and uh turn it back on i'm like hey sergeant i you know okay and so anyway that short yeah. funny story yeah and at the end of the day sometimes you have to prove. that's that's what your job was right you know it, it's better than yeah. your red team and them than an actual you know threat comes in and shuts that down it, it, you know it's that's the yeah. whole purpose of you being there during that time yeah. then obviously you're in a beautiful part of the world and and you know you've got some good leaders good leadership there going on and they're putting you in charge of stuff which is obviously keeping you motivated and things like that what keeps the what keeps the fire alive inside to go back and to have another yeah. crack at it because i mean you don't end up like where you are today without the fire staying alive and obviously like you said about the fitness test and stuff like that you had a long way to go which meant that yeah. you must have done work while you were down there in that job yeah yeah, exactly. So a couple things. So um, I, I was a late bloomer, man. I'll just be honest. And so uh, I, I probably, when I first got to Hawaii, uh, I mean, I was physically fit. You know, I could run well and, and calisthenics and stuff like that. What 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 crushed me was the water. Um, and I think a lot of folks have issues with that. Um, and I, I completely um, did not appreciate and did not put enough work in in the pool uh before and ultimately that's what 
um, you know, I, I failed to do, and, and that's why I failed there initially. And so uh, Hawaii, I, I probably put on freaking 25 pounds uh, in probably a year and a half there, and I, I got I got super motivated again about um, fitness. I had a, a really good workout partner, uh, teammate, uh, and we would go religiously uh, six days a week and, and just crush it. Although at that, at that moment in time, it was, um, you know, it was just all about getting big. Right. And not, not necessarily functional strength outside of the weight room. And so, so that's what I did. Um, and then the, the fire really, uh, another kind of funny, I got in trouble. And so I, I got put on base detail and um which recycling detail which is fucking horrible because you got to drive around the entire base and dig through everybody's trash and pick out all the recycle shit right well the other the other guy that was on detail with me was a tag team in hawaii right and uh and uh so he outranked me he was a he was a an E4, and I think I was probably an E, I was still an E2, I think, at the time, yeah, and um, we were we were bullshitting the whole, you know, couple, two or three days while we were on this detail, and he was cool, uh, I still remember his name, his name was Ben Otter, uh, he was with the Rangers for a long time after he left Hawaii, and um, he invited me, he's like, hey man, why don't you come up to the, to the unit up at Wheeler, uh, 25th ASOS, and, um, you know, just check it out, man, if, if you're interested and, and see if it's really what you want to do. And so I was like, shit, hell yeah, man. And so um, next day I went, asked my supervisor, um, and he's like, yeah, absolutely, 100% support, man. Like, let me know when you want to go up there and, and do it, right? And so I did. And so went up to the 25th. And, you know, this kind of showed me around the unit, kind of, you know, the vehicles, the radios, all our kit, all that sort of thing. And then they had an exercise coming up with the, the 25th Infantry Division. And they, they uh, asked if I wanted to go out with them. I was like, fuck yeah. And so, again, my supervisor, cool dude, he's like, yeah, man, if you want to go check it out, like nothing better to, to see if that's what you want to do than go out in the field with them and so so that's what I did I went without went with them out in the field for about a week on this exercise and um, had no clue what I was doing um, and you know I think they spent more time uh, you know watching me making sure I didn't do something stupid than, than anything else but but that was a good experience um, again they, they showed me everything that all of those guys were super cool, man. It was, it was like no ego or, or arrogance. They're, they're all super cool about teaching me and answering questions. And so after that exercise, man, I knew that's exactly what I wanted to do. Um, and so from that point, I just had to wait until the Air Force uh, got in this certain window where I could uh, put in a retraining package. Uh, and that's what I did. And I retrained in the tag P in April of 2000. Yeah. So. Do you, uh, when you were doing the sort of like the spin up and that, were you, did you stay in Hawaii with those guys? Like, 
did you did they basically say hey these are all the things that you need to do to be successful when you go back you know to the mainland and, and start your course were you almost embedded yeah. with them at that point uh no I, w I didn't get embedded with them but what i did is i i i befriended a lot of them because um those all the single guys were they still live in the barracks on on hickam and so um i linked up with those guys you know off duty hours in the barracks and, and they would be teaching me some stuff and, and giving me some pointers and um you know kind of giving me the the lay of the land and then i i did i did uh transition my my workout program at, at, after that point because i think man i i was at my heaviest I, I was 190 and for you know five foot nine and a half inch 190 pounds i was i when i i'll just put it this way when i was that big like i couldn't run half a mile like it was wow. ridiculous yeah and so i immediately um just stopped doing that nonsense and uh started running started doing more just body weight functional stuff and um it, it didn't take too long to to get back into to solid uh fitness cardiovascular fitness shape um and so that's really where i focused a lot of my 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 fitness stuff was just cardiovascular endurance and, and uh functional body weight stuff yeah when you come off the back of that then and you do, you get your place on the course you know what's the what's it look like for a young guy who's obviously served in the air force you, you know is that when you arrive there you must be a re relatively senior dude anyway because you've already got three years under your belt and stuff um mm -hmm. what's that pipeline look for until you arrive at your first unit and what's that like showing up there with the background that you've already got yeah so again i i think i was well i, I think i was lucky so when i when i left hawaii i already had my orders uh to the unit i was going to after training which uh, was the 13th asos at fort carson colorado best post in the army by the way <laughs> um and so i actually pcs from hawaii to fort carson in in march of 2000 and so i, I spent about a month about a month and a half at fort carson before i actually went down to florida to start training and so that was again he, very lucky because you know I spent that month and a half with the guys at the unit I was going to be coming back to after training and obviously again soaking up everything that I, I could in that month and a half time period uh, in terms of you know understanding the, the job the radios again my fitness um, all that sort of stuff and so when I when I get when I actually get to training in Florida in in April of 2000, I was a senior airman. I was an E4. Um, I wasn't the highest ranking. We had a believe it or not, we had an E6 and it, yeah, an E6 and two E5s. Uh, the E6 was a guard guy, uh, and then the two E5s were, were active duty. Um, and not, obviously, we were all put in leadership positions of uh, various capacities you know so we each basically had a we had the e6 he was in charge of us all and then the other those other of us had like a basically a squad of yeah guys. it'd be crazy for them not to use that so, structure 
Yeah, so that was that was no big deal. It was it was easy, you know, for the most part. Yeah, big, you know, right right place, right time, right kit, right attitude. Yeah, definitely. I think the attitude's a big thing. Uh, you know, I think the term the the way you're using the term luck is is an interesting context because I don't really like the word and the way the word is used in the modern world. I think it's kind of lost. Yeah. I think, um, you know, if you hadn't, you know, you couldn't have predicted getting in trouble and being put in that on that duty. <laughs> I get that. I get that. Right. Yeah. But then having that conversation with that guy and having, you know, being being able to swallow down your ego hard enough that you're going to go and spend some time with a unit you know nothing about with people you don't spend anything about know anything about right and then you're going to ask your supervisor and you know that was good leadership on his part you know for letting you go and not and him being humble enough to say hey you know i don't have to hold on to my people i can let them excel Mm -hmm. but that like that term luck is difficult for me to because i think a lot of what you're saying you still have to do it you still have to put yourself in the situation um Yes, you were given chances, mm-hmm. but do you take the chance? So you were given good chances or you were given good opportunities, but you, you, you went after them. And I think maybe you're using luck in the, probably in the right way. But I think in the modern world, people are like, oh, you know, it was luck. And I was like, well, no, Brett still had to go right. to that compound. He still had to go into the field. He yeah. still had to ask his supervisor to, you know, um, he still had to take on board what he was being trained when he turned up at yeah. Carson um, early and stuff like that. So. I know what you're saying. I get it, but I, I just don't, I want everyone to realize that that's a mindset thing. That's a hard work thing as opposed to just like a flip of a coin and, and guess what? I'm attack P. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I appreciate you pointing that out. And, and, and I agree with you. Um, and I, you know, personally, I think things happen for a reason. Uh, we don't always know why that or what that we may never know. But I think just some certain things, man, it's just kind of weird. Just happened, um, and I absolutely agree with you. Like when, when, and maybe opportunity is a better word to use in this case. When, when there are opportunities, whether they're they are presented to you or you see them, um, it is still on you, on that individual, to to roger up and and take advantage of those opportunities. Um, and certainly. Yeah. Um, the support from from leadership, from family, from friends, all that sort of thing that that can help. But at the end of the day, it's it's that individual taking that first step uh, to get it done, and then seeing it through, really. Yeah. Um, to make it happen. So yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. So you obviously you're given the opportunity and the chance to go to the 13th, and before you go to training, and then you mm-hmm. go back back there. So you, you know you got a relatively good idea of the layout of the land and how it's going to go. But, you know, what does it look like then turning back up there, TACP, you know, how does that mm-hmm. roll into you? You know, what time frame do you stay in that first position? What's that look like for you when you first get back there? Yeah. Yeah. So I got back to Carson, uh, the end of July of 2000 and, uh, and I was, I was super fired up. And at that point I, I did very well in training. Um, I was DG and won the leadership award, uh, won the Ruck March at the end. And so I was, I just, man, I, at that point coming out of tech school, I was just, I was all in, uh, just really fired up. And so when I got back, I was assigned to the, uh, or aligned, I should say, with the third 
first squadron of the third armored cavalry regiment wow. and which is a historic unit in the army uh brave rifles and just a, a really good uh unit and so we were there there back in the day we called etacs right enlisted terminal attack controllers uh, but I wasn't an ETAC yet. Um, I was what we what we call a ROMAD, which you know came out of Vietnam, which radio operator, maintainer, and driver is the original uh, meaning of it. And so, just again, I'm in upgrade training. I'm a three level, trying to go as fast as I can. And, and for retrainees, um, they you you can get upgraded to a five level within a year. And actually, I did it. I think nine months or something like that. So I was all about, okay, just I'm absorbing as much as I can. I'm learning as quickly as I can because I know that I'm a retrainee. So I, I, I got a, I got a lot to make up for in terms of my peers, uh, grade wise that have been doing the job since they came in the air force. So I, I got a lot of learning to do a lot of catching up to do. And so I did that as quickly as I could. Um, and I progressed, really quick and that I went to the uh, JFCC, so the Joint Firepower Control course, which back in the day was the course to um, teach you how to be a JTAC, right? And so I, I went to JFCC literally on the one year um, anniversary of me graduating from training, which was pretty unheard of back then uh typically guys would be in training for three years yeah uh, before they got an opportunity to go to, to gfcc so again i was I, again super humbled and, and appreciative that, that my leadership at the time saw that uh, i had the potential uh to go um just a year out of tech school and um and so i i went to gfcc in in july of 2001 and uh graduated that and again you don't you're not uh, as you know you're not fully qualified as a jtac after you you go through jfcc you still have to get your initial eval and, and that sort of thing and so uh, again i got back and I, I asked to schedule my initial eval as, as fast as we could uh, yeah and um Ironically, my initial eval, this is no shit, my initial eval was, was on September 11th. And so like the day before, you know, I'm, I'm prepping all my kit, uh, getting the vehicle squared away, just getting, you know, I'd already gotten my Warno and, and uh, doing all my mission planning. And, you know, September 11th, the morning of, you know, I'm out in the motor pool packing my shit out and my supervisor runs out and he's like, Hey man, I need you to go to go to the gym and grab all the rest of the guys from PT. And, uh, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm supposed to be rolling out in like an hour. And he's like, man, just, just go get the guys. I'm like, okay. And he's like, um, you know, terrorists just flew fucking planes into the, you know, the World Trade Tower. And I thought he was fucking with me. Like, I thought this was part of my scenario. Okay. For, for my eval. And I'm like, okay, whatever. So, 
I, I drive down to the, the gym, which was only like half a mile away from the unit. And I walk in the gym and the, you know, the, the ladies behind the desk there, they had the TV on and I'm, I didn't really pay much attention to it. And I, I'm running around the gym trying to corral the freaking guys. And uh, I'm walking back and, and I look back in the office at the TV and everybody's staring at it now. And I actually saw the second plane on live TV smash into the other tower. And I'm like, holy shit, like this is real. Yeah. So obviously from there, we all, you know, rallied back at the unit and, you know, basically just tried to figure shit out. So, yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I guess your uh, evals postponed uh, on, yeah. at, at that point. But uh, how quickly does that sort of manifest itself into something? What I mean, I know everybody's like, what are we going to do? This, that, and the other. Um, yeah. and, 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 you know, it takes a cycle. People think that, you know, the very next day, people were like doing stuff and this, that, and the other. And I'm not saying right. they weren't, but, you know, right. people were still trying to figure out the stuff. Like, how long does it take before your unit sees the sort of other side of the wave from that? Right. And so... It, it, just like you described it, it was for us, you know, cause we were a conventional unit, um, you know, it was, it was really figuring out, okay, who's going to go, uh, wh what are the requirements, right? Who, who's going to go in there first, um, which wasn't going to be us obviously. And um, so really, yeah, not, it, it was pretty quiet for us. Right. And so obviously every, a lot of the guys were, especially me, uh, of course, I still wasn't at JTAC yet, but everybody's like volunteering to, okay, I don't give a shit who it's with and where it's at, but send me, right? Um, so anyway, fast forward, I, I, I get my initial email about a month later, and then from there, man, I'm like, the, the first thing smoking to get me overseas, like that's what I want to do. Well, that that didn't happen until the 2002 the following late spring so me and my teammate uh we deployed in may of 2002 our my first our first deployment to afghanistan which was um you know one of your questions here which which was one of your favorite parts of my life and now this is one of them um so again just to kind of put it in context so i had become a tag p in july of 2000 and now i'm deploying as a jtac in, into combat in may of 2008 and so pretty you know and i was a freaking computer guy before that and so you know it was a, it was a really really fast as if you look at it and um just completely different environment. Uh, but anyway, we get over there and, you know, again, this is May 2002. We're at uh, Bagram flying there. And um, it, that is it, still a Wild West back then at Bagram, man. It was, yeah. it was pretty cool. And they didn't, you know, the, there's an Air Force element there uh, that we fell in with. They didn't really know what, what the fuck to do with us. They didn't even know we were showing up. Yeah, and you know it's total 
disorganized chaos for you know a little bit. And so my buddy and I were like, they were working the ASOC, right? The Air Support Operations Center, which is for the listeners, um, it's it's the the element that mans the radios. And so when JTACs in the field are requesting close air support, those are the people that they call on the other end of the radio that actually tasks aircraft to go support them in the field, right? Yeah. Basically. And so anyway, uh, my buddy Kyle and I were like, man, that's, we, sh- we don't want to be in the ASOC, man. That's ridiculous. Um, we went about the field. And so we were, we were trying to basically pour ourselves out to anybody that needed JTAC. And thank God, we, I don't know how it happened, but we ran into the Brits. The Brits needed, you guys needed a, a JTAC, and specifically a uh, 4-5 commando, British Royal Marines. They needed JTACs. And I'm like, we're like, hell yeah, man, we'll go. And so... My my buddy and I, <clears throat> Kyle, um, and there was a tech sergeant. We were both. I was a staff sergeant. Kyle was a an E4, and then there was a there's this E6 that was like from another unit. That he didn't want to do the ASOC either. So the three of us <clears throat> got uh, attached to uh, the commandos. Yeah. And. Man, I will tell you, um, Kyle and I uh, went with the first company we were we were with was a whiskey company, and it was uh, Objectana. It was uh, big operation that they that the Brits were doing, and uh, we inserted uh, in the southeast uh, part of the country, right along the border. Um, and basically, our, our the mission at that point was just to go and conduct reconnaissance and interdiction of you know dudes coming across the border in that area of the country. And you know everybody's got their first their story, their first let's say combat insertion and, and experience. And and man, I was uh, uh, I, I didn't know what I didn't know. You know, like a, a lot of people. And we, I inserted, and I was so fucking heavy. Um, man, I had everything in the kitchen sink, you know. And back then, you know, we were still, you know, I had the, the 117, the initial version of the 117. Yeah. I had a plugger, you know, this massive GPS. And uh, I had a Mark 7 laser rangefinder, which was like the most high-speed thing you'd ever seen in your life at that point. Um, of course, you had, I think I had like four extra batteries in there and hands, extra, you know, extra fucking everything. Yeah. And, you know, body armor, helmet, weapon, ammo, water. Um, I mean, everybody like uh, exaggerates. But uh, at least a hundred pounds of shit. Yeah. And um, fuck, man. It's like, easy done, isn't it? It's easy done. Two. It, the, the old adage two is one and one is none" is uh, it, yeah. is something that we all live and die by. But it, you get heavy fast, and it's easy to overpack. You know what? I put another one in. Because, yeah, it's funny. I was just telling my son this the other day. Uh, ounce, ounces equal pounds. 
Mm. And uh, and I was like, because we're because we're moving right now. And I'm, and I'm like, man, just throw that shit away. He's like, oh, it doesn't weigh that much. I'm like, bro, 500 of those little things add up. So yeah. But um, yeah. So whiskey company is a dismounted company. And uh, man, those dudes, I, I gotta tell you, um, nothing but respect for for the British military and, and, and certainly the uh, the Royal Marines. Like those dudes are no shit. And I I, I learned so much from those guys, and uh, they were they were just so welcoming to to Kyle and I, um, and just taught us a, just a lot about living in the field and and packing your kit and um you know what you really need versus what you want right yeah um and uh i remember that first night we 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 got it we inserted uh we pushed out patrols and uh i went with one of the the um squads and we got up there and and in the mountains and it, it was a, it's amazing i'll just say that like once we get to our our hide site it's like man like one dude like they had a we called it a shell scrape a, a foxhole but they had that shit dug out a poncho up and they're cooking tea in like fucking 10 minutes and I'm 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 still screwing around trying to get my poncho out of the damn my rucksack, and I didn't have anything to make any sort of shelter with. And of course, we have this freak Afghan monsoon strike in the mountains, and I'm soaking ass wet and froze my balls off that night, and they were. Four of them under one poncho because your all's ponchos are massive. I actually yeah. got one, they're badass. And um, they're on there, you know, drinking hot tea and just laughing their ass off. <laughs> my ass off. And uh, but that was a lesson learned, man. Like, you, yeah. gotta, you gotta learn sometimes, you gotta learn the hard way. Yeah, sometimes um, it has to go to a dark place to find the answer. Yeah, but that was that was my first night. I'll say in, in combat, uh, freezing ass in the mountains. Did you um, did you stay with those guys the whole way through that deployment, or did you cycle um, away with other units? Yeah, yeah we we stay with with four or five. Uh, I would say almost the entire time, and we were in the field, um, man, a long time, probably. I think when we added it all up, we were out there for probably 45 days. And, and, and I supported uh, Whiskey, and then I was with Zulu uh, for a while, which was a mounted company. Um, and then uh, I did a couple short missions with Yankee Company towards the end. Um, but yeah, it was, we were with the, the Brits uh, until they, until they, uh, redeploy yeah and then at that that point we um kyle and i got pushed over to the uh combined joint special operations task force uh to to basically work in their in their jock 
yeah. the fire desk and the jock. And so we did that until we redeployed in like end of August of 2002. Yeah. So coming back from that and obviously having uh, all of those experiences, obviously at that time, you're probably only one of the guy, the only guys, you know, in the States, you know, so early on with that kind of level of experience you've done, mm-hmm. not only have you been away, not only have you sat on the top of a mountain and, you know, in a pit, in the pissing rain, but you've worked multinational, you've worked yeah. in an ops room, you've worked on the ground, you know, it's a baptism of fire in that first operational tour. Is that yeah. like, what happens when you come home? Is someone like, right, you guys need to go elsewhere and you need to spread this love fast. Yeah, exactly. And so that's what we did. When, when Kyle and I got back, um, we, we, we rounded up all the, all the guys, especially all the young guys, and we would, we would, we would take them down range um, damn near every day. And it was basically, it was gear shakeout. Because, uh, man, we, we, Kyle and I learned the hard way, man. And I, I remember uh, Kyle was going to, Kyle got tasked to another um, company while we we're out with whiskey. This is about maybe five days in, not that long. And so he was flying out to go link up with another company. And, but he was going back to Bogdan first. And I remember, I'm like, Kyle, take all of this shit back and, and put it in the tent, man. And it was probably about 50 pounds worth of shit that I didn't need. Yeah. Um, and so when we got back, we that's what we did with the guys, right? We said, okay, guys, this is what we're going to do. Here's your five W's. Pack it, all the shit you think you need. And boom. And then we went. And we would just, just you just rucked your ass off. Uh, and man, the, the the commandos, those guys are fucking mules, and and they don't and they rock hard and fast, and it doesn't matter the incline or what the altitude, don't matter. Like you better keep up. Yeah. And and so that's the way we started training the guys, and and they very quickly, and then of course they would crush themselves because all they, they carry all this shit, and then we'd have a you know, an academic situation where you're like, okay, guys, let's, let's dump out your rucks. Let's see what you got. And then very quickly, it, it doesn't take long with a bunch of weight on your back to make you realize that you don't need a certain piece of uh, comfort gear, so to speak. Yeah. Well, that's what we did. And, and um, we, we tried to pass on our, all the lessons that we learned from those guys and, um, and just go from there it was it was it was a good time yeah you're um obviously you're going up through the ranks and you're getting the opportunity to like to instruct you know and you've got that kind of like send me attitude you know how quickly is it before you cycle back yep and so um we at fort carson uh 10 special forces is also at fort carson and so i <clears throat> coming off of uh, that deployment no two, uh, Kyle and I both wanted to go do the special operations thing. And we, our squadron had uh, an element assigned to 10th group. And and obviously we, we'd see those guys every once in a while. They, they lived on their compound. But, um, but anyway, 
I had put, we had both put in a package to, to go over to, to the special operations side of the house. Um, and, and back then they used to have a, an actual assessment that you would go to at Fort Bragg and, and all that sort of thing. But because of the war, that kind of, it got canceled because all those dudes were gone anyway, they were going to assess you. And so it, 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 it was just a paper type board package that we submitted. Um, we got us, we got picked up and we started training with those guys, uh, preparing as we were starting to ramp up to, um, Iraq in 03, uh, we were doing a lot of training with, with 10 special forces group. And again, learning a ton, uh, more on, I would say just the weapons handling and, and tactics versus the field craft that we learned primarily from the, the Marines. Yeah. Um, and so I was, I was set to deploy with 10th group up until January of 2003. And then again, things happen for a reason. Um, the battalion that I was assigned to on the conventional side uh, we didn't, we didn't have enough JTACs on the conventional side. Um, and the other, I should have mentioned this, the other army unit at Fort Carson at the time was third brigade of the fourth infantry division. And so, um, I got pulled back from 10th group to go and, and be a JTAC for, uh, first battalion, eighth infantry, yeah. third brigade, fourth infantry division. And which, you know, I was, I was, I was bummed out about, you know, I really wanted to go deploy with 10th crew, but again, uh, we were going to be there. And so, um, so I was happy to do it, you know? And so I was the, the NCIC, I was the lead JTAC for one eight infantry and, uh, again, just transition, uh, prepping, uh, getting into their battle plans. Uh, understanding what their scheme maneuver was going to be, what the objectives for the battalion were going to be, uh, planning the the air support for that, and uh, yeah, deployed with deployed with Fourth Infantry uh, to Iraq in two thousand three. Yeah, so obviously going with a conventional force into sort of more of a conventional, well, a conventional ish battle didn't stay that way for long. What you know, what is yeah. that? What does that look like considering obviously you've been running around at company level with the, the Marine, yeah. the British Marines. Um, and then you come back and you're like, right, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to get up to speed so I can be in these special tactics. But like, you've now yeah. got like such a wide breadth of knowledge, but you're going back into a conventional unit into a conventional yeah. fight. Yeah. How's that feel? And, and, and sort of how does that bring you home from the States after that? Yeah, so it was, um, I, I tell you what, I, the conventional side of the things, um, you know, big army, man, I, I learned a ton from, from those guys. And, and, and luckily, again, honestly, luckily, um, I had the opportunity to go to the National Training Center with, with this battalion previously yeah. and, and learned a ton. Um, you know, again, the Sergeant Major was, was awesome. FSOs and the fire support guys were awesome. 
the battalion commander was super awesome, man. Like he just did not give a shit. He wanted to destroy everything. <laughs> and um, real, real great guy, real great leader. And um, it was just a, you know, it's, a, it's, a, you know, going from a company level, obviously, to an entire battalion. Like just, there's more pieces to keep track of. Uh, this is a mechanized infantry battalion, so we're, we're talking Bradleys and. Uh, I had the biggest piece of shit, 113 armored personnel carrier, um, like generation one from, I think it was built in like 1958. Yeah. Um, it broke down all the time um, in Baghdad and, and all over the damn country. Um, luckily, my driver was, was a 113 mechanic and kept us going, but... Um, but it was just, it was, it was, again, it was a great experience uh, because you're dealing with big army. They're, they're very linear and, and everything happens. There's a process to everything. Um, and so, yeah, we got through that deployment and, um, you know, it was cool because our battalion, we missed out on a lot of the fighting because if, if, if you recall or you're listening to the call, um, we were supposed to come from the north, out down through Turkey, and Fourth Infantry was supposed to come down through Turkey and attack from north to south, while Third Infantry Division come from the south to north, right out of Kuwait. Well, Turkey screwed us and wouldn't allow us to bring our shit through their country, and so the ships had to go all the way around with all our, our gear and drop us off in Kuwait, and we followed uh, 3rd Infantry and the Marines um, as, you know, basically just doing cleanup duties, so. Brett's story is uh, fantastic. We're almost at an hour here, so I'm gonna make a cut at this point uh, and split this into Alpha and Bravo. I'll drop Bravo the very next day um, for everybody so you can continue to listen. Um, please tune in for 47 Bravo. Thank you, and I appreciate you taking the time to listen. All our podcasts sit on the Nine Foot Night Killer Collective, Soul Feed, Forge Not Made, and the JTAP podcast. Take some time, maybe listen to one of the other podcast series that you're not listening to, and give us your feedback. All these things only happen because of the Nine Foot Night Killer community, and we really appreciate them. Thank you, everybody, for listening. <laughs>